Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. If we can't break out of this regime, that that will feed into a more existential question of why not and whether we can ever move. Let's bring in my data, shall we? MKM Partners, Chief Economist and Chief Market Strategist. Mike, good morning to you. Thanks for having me on. What happened to the higher vol regime? February, it really (laughs) feels like a distant memory now. It does. It does. So it's dissipated for now. Um, Obviously, markets care a lot about inflation concerns. So we're getting strong job growth without wages picking up. And so that hasn't, you know, that that threat in terms of the Fed panicking uh, is not with us at the moment. And then the last CPI report, we had the core inflation rate a few months back running, you know, up into the threes and headline into the fours on a three-month annualized basis. And that's completely come off the boil with this with this weak print. Now, it is one month, and if you look at the year-over-year data, we're still just above 2% on both headline and core CPI. So, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to, you know, to make too much of just one month, right. you know, one month's, uh, uh, you know, cooling off, but the markets do seem to care about this a lot because ultimately, when we have discussions about how long is the Fed going to tighten, will they invert the yield curve? If they start to really get concerned about overheating, that's when you know, business cycles tend to end, you know, with with the Fed tightening enough to kill the expansion. So it looks like that risk, at least in the very short term, is, you know, has been stepped back a bit. So we're back to Goldilocks, in other words. Yeah, basically. Okay. It's right. an uncomfortable place <laughs> so, to be. It, so, so basically, everyone should feel good, take lots of risk and and, and keep on singing Kumbaya. Yeah. Um, but I do want to get your sense. I mean, at what point uh, do we have to start worrying? And do you expect Treasury yields to go lower? I do think, so if we're thinking more broadly um, about 2019 and 2020, the key question is, what kind of nominal GDP growth backdrop are we going to have? You know, the main reason that the 10-year yield ran up to about 3% or just over from, what, the 130s in 2016? Was that we had a pretty dramatic pickup in the business cycle, right? Nominal GDP growth was running at just 2.5% year to year in the middle of 2016. We're up at 4.8% year over year on nominal growth. So, uh, a pretty significant reacceleration in growth, and that came on the back of a huge narrowing in credit spreads, right? Easing financial conditions. If that's essentially behind us now, but what's in front of us is the impact of the accumulated Fed tightening that we'll see this year, you know, and last year. And nominal growth is slower as a result, you know, back down to the recovery averages are maybe a bit less over the course of the next two years. The 10-year yield, in in my view, will, you know, if anything, be a bit lower. So that's sort of an out-of-consensus call because most of the the, the people I talk to in financial circles are thinking, well, we're kind of on a moonshot to like 4% on the 10-year. That could happen, but yeah. Diamond, carry on. <laughs> yes, yes. Now that could happen. I could be wrong in my assessment, but if I'm wrong, I think it will simply be because the nominal growth rate not only fails to slow but continues to accelerate. If that's really the environment we're in, growth continuing at a strong pace, inflation, you know, continuing to move to move up this last month, notwithstanding, but the year-over-year rates, then you could see yeah. you know higher yields. But that's what it would need to be connected to. What I don't see is a growth moderation and then you know rates spiking up. That would be a bit unusual. So the, the base case view among economists surveyed by Bloomberg on the street right now, on Wall Street, not 
the street street, um, is for growth to peak this year. Hey, you. To roll over a little bit, can you imagine? Yeah. To yeah. roll over a little bit next year and to roll over a little bit more after that. Um, right. That seems to be the consensus view amongst everybody that I've yeah. spoken to. Yeah. We peak this year, we get close to three, roll over towards two and a half, roll over towards two right. in the next two years. Is that your base case yeah, or basically, not? basically, it's not, I don't like running with the consensus, but you know, the consensus is actually usually right. They're just wrong at turning points, right? Always wrong at turning points, but otherwise generally correct. Uh, so, so right now we sort of have this you know, Goldilocks situation where the growth numbers have been good, it, wages and inflation have, you know, have, you know, have not been alarming. And, you know, the case is for a slowdown to not be violent, but be, yeah. but to, you know, to be more modest because you're not in an environment where, say, credit spreads are shooting up at this point. You mentioned the volatility tends to correlate pretty closely with, with credit spreads and financial conditions. So, that's where we are, so it would make sense that the consensus would hold that view. Makes me a little bit uncomfortable to be running with the consensus, um, but you know, it 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 does make sense based on you know the the backdrop just described. Well, you you mentioned the absence of credit risk, Lisa. Triple C's. I mean, if we keep coming back to this, triple C's, the junkiest part of junk, yeah. is where the outperformance has been in yeah. 2018. Well, uh, yeah, and people will argue this is part because the energy sector was dominant in the triple C sector, and you've got energy uh, prices rebounding. Perhaps that's it. Uh, but there also hasn't been that much supply. People aren't uh, companies that are, are riskier, haven't been selling as much debt, uh, with the exception of WeWork and Uber and some of these other uh <laughs> questionable companies. I, I, I want to uh, get your uh, take, Mike, on something that sort of is a little off topic, and that is ge uh, geopolitical risk. Because, right. you know, yes, everything seems great. As John was saying, we're back to 2017. Goldilocks stands. Everyone's happy. And yet there's a war uh, that is at risk of breaking out between uh, Syria and, uh, and, and Israel with Iran getting involved. The U.S. just exited the Iranian nuclear deal. You have issues with uh, North Korea. You have China and U.S. trade wars. When do we? When do we have to care? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question because you know markets seem like they just overlook this stuff, and typically they do, unless you have a, ge a geopolitical event that actually threatens to disrupt commerce and profits. You know, it sounds like a, a cold statement, right? Yeah. Well, markets don't care about dead bodies. They care about commerce and it profits. It is a cold statement, but historically, <clears throat> it stands up if you look at the data. Yeah, it stands up if you look at the data. So yeah, it does seem like the world just got a little bit more dangerous in the last 48 hours. Uh, but in terms of, of markets, you know, we'd need to see a series of events that actually threatens commerce on a you know on a broad scale and uh and then you know markets will you will react to that it is trade that issue i think trade is that issue i mean at this point you know we've seen a lot of bluster we'll see what happens with policy follow through or lack thereof i think the administration has a bit of a challenge in terms of getting on the same page i know you've done some interviews with some key administration officials and depending yeah. on who you have on and what you at you get a different answer you know uh even asking the same well, questions I'm you're as confused as i am Mike. <laughs> so, carry on so <laughs> the you diplomacy know. here is really <laughs> remarkable right. carry on so you know, the president seems to, you know, his issue seems to be the trade deficit, right? I mean, that's if you, it, it, when he's asked, what is the goal with, you know, with the China trade negotiations, it's the trade deficit. Well, yeah. you know, if you're running up the fiscal deficit at exactly the wrong time in the business cycle, you do a two-year spending blowout, 
you know, and the, and then this tax cut, the trade deficit's going to go higher, all other things equal. Yeah. So, I mean, potentially you could shift it from China somewhere else, but uh, protectionist policy is not going to succeed in reducing the trade deficit unless you actually were able to do something that blew up the U.S. economy in the process. So if investment and spending collapsed relative to the level of savings, then you could run trade surpluses. That's what we did during the 1930s. Probably not a policy path that uh, anyone is knowingly advocating. Mike Danda, it's been great to see you. you Thank too. you very much for joining us this morning, sir. MKM Partners, Chief Economist and Chief Market Strategist. President Trump welcomed home three American prisoners from North Korea. We also found out yesterday Singapore is the designated location for the June 12th meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. What are we expecting to hear out of these meetings? Uh, joining us now, Nick Wadhams, Bloomberg State Department reporter. Nick, uh, what do you think is the most likely outcome of the uh, historic summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un? Well, that's that's really the big question because uh, they haven't done a lot of the sort of nitty gritty groundwork uh, to uh, pin down, um, you know, real sort of deliverables from this meeting. So I think what you're likely to see the strategy uh, being is a, a sort of hoping uh, to start the momentum going so that um, when those negotiations do get tough on the on the details of how North Korea would denuclearize, uh, they're hoping that basically the momentum created by that handshake would push those negotiations through. So sort of a, a very symbolic yeah. uh, opening um, opening shot uh, that would then push the negotiations through. Nick, who is coming into these meetings with the upper hand, President Trump or North Korean leader Kim Jong-un? <sighs> Well, I think at this stage, it's clearly Kim Jong-un. I mean, this is a huge risk for President Trump, because if he cannot deliver a deal, uh, then um, he will look very bad, and his his reputation and credibility uh, will really be undermined. I mean, for Kim Jong-un, the meeting itself is a huge victory. He gets to share the stage with the president of the United States. And so far, he has not committed to doing anything that North Korea uh, has not committed to in the past, only to uh, renege upon. So, uh, so far, I think Kim Jong-un looks like the clear winner here. Nick Wadhams, great to have you with us on the program. Of course, joining us uh, over the next couple of weeks in the lead up to that amazing summit that's set to happen between the president, the two respective leaders of North Korea and the United States. Our Bloomberg State Department reporter, really pleased to say that with us here in New York is Stephen Cook, CFRO, CFR, Senior Fellow for the Middle East. Um, Stephen, great to have you with us on the programme. Pleasure to be here. Let's talk about the Middle East. Tensions really flaring. And earlier on, I said to you, let's talk about your base case for the conflict. And you said, which one? Um, so let's begin with one, um, the Israelis and the Iranians. Tensions continuing to flare. Some might say even an escalation over the last couple of weeks, Stephen. How do you see things evolving there? Well, the Israelis are saying the right things about not wanting an escalation, but there is an existential issue at play for the Israelis. They do not, and they are intent on preventing the Iranians from establishing a permanent presence in Syria in which to arm Hezbollah. They have vowed not to allow what happened in Lebanon, where Hezbollah was able to acquire tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of rockets and missiles. They vowed to prevent that from happening in Syria. So I expect that uh, not only will tensions continue to flare, but the kind of violence that we've seen 
over the last few weeks, most dramatically uh, the other the other night, uh, to continue. Does Israel feel emboldened now the president has pulled out of the JCPOA? Well, let's let's be clear. Um, this tit for tat violence between the Israelis and the Iranians has been happening before the president withdrew from the JCPOA, but certainly the Israelis feel emboldened. This has been a goal of Israeli Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu since the Iran nuclear agreement was being negotiated. Um, So uh, they certainly feel as if uh, the situation in the region with their relations with the wider Arab world and support from the United States uh, is shifting in Israel's direction. So pretty much everyone who I've heard talk about this expects the conflict to escalate here. What does the base case look like in your mind as to an escalated conflict and how wide does it get? Well, it, it, it strikes me that it's going to be it, – their escalation is, is certainly uh, a likelihood here, but whether it widens to include other actors like the Russians or even the United States seems to be somewhat limited. Uh, the, the Russians um, – every party to this conflict in Syria has to go to the Russians for permission, for a deal – uh, and so uh, it, it's unlikely that the Russians will get directly involved on behalf of the Assad regime. In the fight between Israelis and Iranians, however, uh, it could uh, escalate to the point where you do have a kind of open conflict, not just these airstrikes and missile uh, strikes. It is unbearable from the perspective of the Israelis to have large numbers of Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps members uh, in Syria. How did how did Russia end up being the power broker in all of this, with Vladimir Putin kind of having his ring out and everybody coming to kiss it? it, it because the Russians intervened in 2015 uh, and essentially saved the Assad regime. Assad is dependent upon him. Uh, the Iranians have become partners of sorts uh, with the Russians. Uh, and the Israelis need Russian assent, essentially, to operate with impunity the way that they have in the skies over Syria. And what Putin does is he provides that permission. He saves the Assad regime. He works with the Iranians. But he demonstrates that his interests are independent of theirs. Thus, uh, he hasn't come to the defense of the Syrian regime when it comes to the Israelis taking matters into their own hands. Uh, this is a way of keeping each and every one of these parties coming back to Moscow. Uh, Netanyahu was just there uh, yeah. discussing these issues with, with Putin. So how on earth do we get a broader deal that the president would like for Iran to come to the table, agree to everything they've already agreed to, and then agree to even more? Intervention in the region, ballistic missile testing... That broader deal that the president wants, and some people might say quite rightly wants, can he get it? Well, that's the logical flaw in the president's decision to breach the uh, JCPOA. Uh, To break the agreement and then demand a whole host of measures that were already included in the agreement plus uh, would... If one was an Iranian decision maker, why would anybody take that deal? And let's be clear, Stephen, what we've heard in the last couple of days as well is that this administration would like the inspectors to still go into Iran, even though the United States has pulled out of the deal. I mean, this is um, some very, very high expectations on the U.S. administration side for what might happen here with Iran. 
It, it, it does seem that every time the administration makes a decision along these lines, they have failed to underestimate the likely reaction of their adversaries or interlocutors. Once again, if you look at it from the perspective of the Iranians, the United States is in breach of the agreement. There's no reason, there's no compelling reason for them to allow uh, the United States to dictate terms now that the United States is out of the deal, but the Europeans and other signatories remain in it. So I want to know uh, sort of what you expect the consequences to be on the Iranian economy. Some people are saying that uh, the people might uproot the current leadership and there might be regime change sort of de facto as a result of the U.S. decision here. Do you think that that's likely? Well, it, it is no secret that there has been unrest in Iran uh, over the course of the last months. And much of the unhappiness in Iran has to do with the fact that President Rouhani uh, said that after this agreement, things would get better uh, for Iranians. But Iranians are upset about a whole host of things, uh, about Iranian adventuresome, uh, adventure, uh, an adventurous Iranian foreign policy around the Middle East that... that the focus has been taken off the Iranian people and on this yeah. kind of imperial policy on the part of uh, of the Iranians. As far as the sanctions and what effect they will have, they certainly will have an effect on uh, Iranian businesses and individuals who have been uh, who have been sanctioned. But let's be clear: bilateral sanctions are weaker than multilateral sanctions. And as long as the Europeans, the Indians, the Russians, the Chinese are not playing along with the United States, the Iranians continue to have options to get around them, even with tough secondary sanctions that the Congress and the administration are promising. And that's what it all comes down to, Stephen. Pulling out of the deal is only effective if U.S. sanctions effectively are international sanctions and secondary sanctions apply to European companies. That's exactly right. It was the multilateral sanctions that ultimately brought the Iranians to the table that led to the negotiations that led to the JCPOA. Yeah. I think it's unlikely that you're going to have that kind of international consensus to negotiate a bigger, better deal. Stephen Cook, it's great to have you with us. Uh, I mean, we could My talk pleasure. for all, all day on, on this specific issue. So curious and so many questions as to what is happening in the Middle East at the moment. CFRA, Senior Fellow for the Middle East. Karen, well, our next guest uh, has gotten it right again and again when it comes to U.S. stocks. So we are going to tap him and his crystal ball of a mind to find out uh, where things are going next. Jonathan Golub joins us, uh, Credit Suisse Chief U.S. Equity Strategist in our 1130 studios. Uh, Jonathan, before we get into uh, sectors, particularly healthcare, ahead of this uh, President Trump speech on drug prices, um, where are we? Are you still as bullish as you have? been on U.S. equities, and do you still see gains ahead? Uh, I I am pretty optimistic. I mean, first of all, the underlying fundamentals are great. This earnings season, um, earnings were up 25% year over year, which is just an unheard of thing. Um, a chunk of that is from taxes, but even if you strip out the taxes, you had 18% earnings growth, which is great. I, a lot of investors are asking if, can it get any better than this? And the answer is probably not, but that doesn't mean that they won't be really good 
And I think that investors are struggling with that whole idea that um, the underlying trend is good, but it can't be as good as, as what we've just uh, achieved. So what the answer might be, we were talking about this ahead of the segment, is to uh, rotate toward uh, sectors that you like best or think there might be opportunities rather than just going in whole hog broadly if you think that this is sort of as good as it gets with respect to earnings. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, and I think that's exactly how you have to think about it. I mean, so the, the first is if you start with tech, which has been the market leader, um, I think that that will continue to be the market leader for, for quite a while. Really? The, yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the returns that you've gotten in the tech sector, They've been driven by earnings, not by the by stock multiples. So if something goes up by twenty percent and its earnings go up by thirty, it didn't get more expensive; it got cheaper, right? So, um, the the tech sector has just been out delivering everything else, and I think that it's going to continue to be a winner. However, those areas like industrials or materials or mining companies that are that do really well when the economy is reaccelerating are probably going to do a little bit less well. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to sell them, but you probably want to um, move from there to other uh, other areas. The problem this time around, which is something we haven't seen, is that the areas you want to rotate to, which would be like consumer staples or healthcare, have their own problems. And so it's a little bit more challenging this time than, uh, than it has been in the past. All right. So let's talk about them. Healthcare, let's talk about the problems because we've got the uh, speech that we're expecting from President Trump at 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern time talking about bringing down pharmaceutical prices. Is that is that one of the big headwinds here? It, it, it is the big headwind. And and, it, and I don't think that it's the president's speech that's, that's the issue. We've seen lack of pricing power in the last few years um, from from uh, big, big biotech and big pharma names. And that's really eaten into the profits. I mean, these have been high growth areas. And if you look at the expected earnings growth rate for these big, bigger companies, not the more speculative small guys, um, they've really come down to the low single digits, and that's a problem. Um, does that mean that I think that that we should be targeting? Um, you know, when, should the president be targeting these companies? Probably not. It's a lot cheaper to give someone a pill that can keep them from getting a heart attack than you know than than taking care of them in in the hospital. So there's places that you might want to wring costs out. I don't know if I would be attacking drug companies, but nonetheless. Drug pricing has been a problem. So you're fairly neutral on healthcare. Uh, we, like. we we are neutral on healthcare. I I would love to rotate there, but but again, there, there's a little bit of problem. And then consumer staples yeah, is another area. That's where I was going to go next. So Coca-Cola, P and G. Uh, what do you think? You know, you know, not not to comment on on specific names, but a couple of years ago, we would have agreed that those companies that are in Amazon sites are going to get crushed, and brick and mortar retail has gotten hurt. Now we've been overweight consumer discretionary stocks, but it really has been short brick and mortar retail or underweight that and go long everything else in consumers discretionary. And that's been a really great call. But now you have something else happening. The brands that are being sold in the supermarket or they're being sold in your department stores are coming under pressure because uh, we're changing the way we're 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 purchasing uh, things because basically you can't pay for shelf space at eye level and people buy it as much is it that simple it, it, it is it is pretty much that simple and also you know there's been this huge premium that we've paid for consumer products because of these brands that we're comfortable with. And now all you need is a certain number of likes on, you know, Amazon or some other social media. And uh, and now you're going and buying a product which may be better for less money. Now, does that mean everybody is changing their, their buying behavior? No, but this earnings season, 
you've seen that the margin story has deteriorated in every one of the subgroups within Staples. So it's not a couple of names. It's really a change in, in shopping behavior. So on one hand, I'd love to be rotating into these names because I think the economy is kind of not necessarily getting, becoming slow, but is becoming less fast. On the other hand, the the earnings outlook for these stocks are, are really more troubled. Okay, so let's shift to energy. Energy uh, stocks in the S&P 500 up almost 7% on the year. Uh, certainly, this comes as oil prices surge. Uh, are you seeing it, uh, still some profits here, or do you think that it's already been baked in? Yeah, well, we've... We've been underweight energy for the last two years, and our read was that oil prices may be going up, but that ultimately these stocks were just way too expensive and there were other issues. And then about five or six weeks ago, we we switched direction and said, uh, now's the time to warm up to uh, to energy companies. So we moved from underweight to neutral. And as we're talking to larger institutions, hedge funds, mutual fund managers, we're finding it at just about the same time, they're seeing the same thing. Oil prices are higher, the profits are, are stronger, and the valuations on these energy companies looks more favorable. And then there's other dynamics around uh, new technologies and fracking that, that actually makes these stocks less volatile. So they're worth more um, in, in the current environment. So you're still neutral. Do you expect to go overweight? I don't know if we're going to go overweight, but the case that we had against energy, which would really they'd been a terrible performer for so long, I think doesn't make sense any worse anymore. So I think the real question is, should you be neutral? Should you be overweight? But to be underweight, the energy sector, um, we, we just don't think is justified anymore. Okay. So given the fact that there are sort of uh, idiosyncratic opportunities, depending on the sector, uh, and sort of a broad Goldilocks backdrop here, where earnings might have peaked, earnings growth might have peaked, uh, but you still have that Goldilocks scenario and a lot of central bank stimulus, uh, how much do you expect the S&P 500 to gain by the end of the year? We're up about 2.5% right now. Yeah, I, I think that we'll probably see low double digit um, numbers. We have a 3,000 target. Really? So you think it's like 11%, 12%? Yeah, we started the year where, where stock multiples, the, 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 the PE on the S&P was 18.2 at the beginning of the year. We're at something like 16.2 right now. And that's a combination of the E got so much bigger. I mean, the, the earnings are just fantastic. And the stock prices are up, you know, as of right now, what, a little bit less than 2%. Um, so our call was that we're going to see something like 1% a month throughout the course of the year. I think that we're going to catch up a little bit from what we lost, and I think we're going to be surprised. The other thing that's happening, and it's a really big story, volatility spiked, and it really beat up on the market in, in February and March. That volatility, if you, if you look on your Bloomberg screen, is Gosh. really is really, really fallen, and I think it is not going to pop back up. I think that we'll see the VIX between 12 and 14 throughout the year, maybe a little bit lower. And I think that that is going to be a, a real positive for the market that's underestimated. All right, so what's gonna be the best performing sector by tech, the end of the year? Tech? Tech, tech will be the best performing sector again this year. And and, and you can see it um, in a variety of in a variety of different areas. I'll just mention you know one theme, but it plays out across things. Um, how big is the is the potential market for online advertising compared to what we're spending today? And I, I don't know whether it's double from here over the next decade, but it's much, much um, bigger. If you look at the, um, the, the cloud computing and, and data centers, and by the way, you can play this in all kinds of other groups, REITs. Um, yeah. there's, there's data center REITs that are just doing unbelievable.
unbelievably well and making big capital commitments. Um, but some of these areas are growing really fast. And it's it's not a question of, is this a good quarter? These are multi, multi-year uh, themes that are going to play out. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse Chief U.S. Equity Strategist, joining us here in our 1130 studios. I want to shift our focus now to uh, technology. And joining us now, I'm so pleased to say, is Austin Goolsby. Some people say he is the funniest economist out there. I call him perhaps the most overqualified comedian. Uh, Austin Goolsby uh, was the uh, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors to President Barack Obama. He has a uh, storied uh, history in the economics profession. He is currently University of Chicago's Booth School of Business professor. Uh, Austin, thank you so much much for being with us. I want to start with uh, this meeting with some White House officials and representatives from Alphabet, Google, Facebook, Goldman Sachs, Boeing, where the White House told them, we are not going to bother you in your development of artificial intelligence. Go crazy. Do what you need to do. We won't get in your way. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's probably healthy as an approach at the beginning, as you know, you know, AI and machine learning and all of the buzzwords are still in a very early stage. So we don't have any idea which which way they're headed. And for the most part, over time, technology is what made us rich. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be too paranoid, Elon Musk style that the AI is going to turn us into the movie and the machines are going to take over the world, uh, you know, just yet. So it's, it's well, probably not, uh, it's, it's probably the healthy approach. Well, the reason why I think this is interesting is because it's coming at a time when people are wondering about Facebook's use of data uh, and, and Google is coming under similar criticism and the European Union is implementing some data protection uh, security. And that's intimately connected to artificial intelligence. No, it's how people use use this data and create systematic ways of analyzing it and, and potentially uh, in ways that, that people could find creepy. Yes. I, look, I don't disagree with your, if the premise of that is, should we be concerned about the, the role of our personal data that the tech companies have and should we have better privacy protection? I t- totally agree with that. I think that's a little different than saying, should we have Congress go down and regulate artificial intelligence, which it's pretty clear virtually no member of Congress has any idea what it is or how it works. So I would just be a little yeah, let's just be a little careful on that end. But that that's not an excuse to do nothing when there are actually things going wrong. The things going wrong at Facebook are not really about artificial intelligence. It's about their desire slash willingness to share far more about us with third parties than we are comfortable with. All right. Well, Austin Goolsby, maybe this is uh, an appropriate time to then segue to the Chinese uh, government, their push for uh, AI uh, dominance. They've already set goals for a tenfold increase in artificial intelligence uh, output in order to keep up uh, with the United States. Um, Let's uh, get your thoughts on uh, uh, U.S.-Chinese trade uh, confrontation. And and do you believe that it it will really become a trade war? 
God, I hope not. You know, I don't know what you guys think about that, but m- my view is th- th- the economic relationship between the U.S. and China is clearly the most important relationship in the world. And I've been a public critic of some aspects of the Chinese economic approach. Um, and the, President Trump is not wrong when he puts focus on uh, the, the violations of intellectual property, them forcing our companies to make joint ventures, and then the joint venture partner kind of steals all the plans and comes out with a competitor. We should be pressing on that. Um, if we just do what they're doing now, which we're going to go over and and yell at them about the size of the trade deficit and threaten $100 billion of tariffs, and then they say, well, we'll put $100 billion on you. And they say, oh, yeah, well, if you put $100 billion on us, we'll put $200 billion on you. That doesn't sound very good. Now, I'm, I'm open to being, I don't know, proven wrong. I'm open to the idea that somebody the trade wars are good in a strategic way, and they're gonna that, that they're gonna only use this as as a kind of a threat to get some deal. Um, but if we actually get into the trade war, no way. Trade war. There's no sense in which trade wars are good. I think for sure um, th- th- it would lead to a freakout, and it might very well lead the U.S. into a recession. How would you counsel uh, the president if he asked you for your input? Because U.S. trade groups are saying that Ford automobiles, naval oranges, lemons, cherries from California, they're all sitting on docks as well as pork. It's sitting on docks in China because Chinese officials have, in a sense, adopted a go-slow inspection policy and a lot of this stuff is just rotting, what would the United States do? What would you suggest to the president? Well, the thing to remember about that is I, I have heard those those reports that the Chinese at customs are slow-walking a bunch of American stuff. Um, they didn't randomly do that. They They are doing that in response to us threatening and imposing hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs on them. So... I guess my advice is that I'm not a massive expert about negotiating with the Chinese. I talked in my part of the world in the administration uh, at the Strategic Economic Dialogue uh, on various issues with the Chinese. My my experience says getting in a big public degradation ceremony in which you announce to the Chinese, we're going to shove your face in the dirt and you're going to have to stand up and publicly capitulate to us, will never work. If you take that attitude, which so far we're kind of taking, uh, you, you basically can't negotiate with them because they publicly have to save face and say, no, we will oppose you in every way. The, the, the advice I would give now is if you fire a shot across the bow, then go in private, shut the door, and have a negotiation and figure out what it is that you want. Do, is it, are you wanting the Chinese to, to commit to certain standards on intellectual property? Are you trying to get them to open this, that, or the other market? If you do that privately after firing a shot across the bow, you might be able to achieve it. But you don't want to simultaneously threaten all of our allies who could 
be helping us in that circumstance, threaten them with trade wars, which is what now what we're doing to the Europeans uh, on steel and aluminum, to the Canadians and, and the Mexicans on NAFTA, and to the Japanese. That doesn't make any sense to me, and so I guess I would... Uh, I would advise – I don't anticipate that the president is going to be calling me, but if he did, I would advise, you know, take one step back and just get a strategy together. Austin Goolsby, uh, University of Chicago's Booth School of Business professor, thank you so much for being with us. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.